Amen. Amen. Good evening, friends. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Here we go, Daniel chapter 6. So when life is white and black, it's really easy to navigate, isn't it? You know what's right and what's wrong, what's clear and what's not. But when life gets gray and the black and white's not this ambiguous gray, it's not that easy at all. It's hard to know when you're doing the right thing and how to expect an outcome from this action. So what do we do when black and white blend into this ambiguous gray zone? What do we do? How do we live? How do we navigate? Perhaps you can relate to Robert Schweller's quote about the time we live in. This is what he says. He says that the world is undergoing transformation. Yep. This fits with the next line, by the way. The world is undergoing transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted. When yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows rules anymore. Where competing global visions collide with each other, where remnants of the past, present, and future coexist simultaneously. I believe that he worded well the time that we find ourselves in. This COVID has run a sword through our lives. So that what we now do is, as we talk with one another, I find myself doing this a lot in conversations, we describe our lives as pre-COVID and post-COVID. And it's really, do you guys relate to it? It's really hard to kind of define the timeline of anything before COVID happened. It's almost like it's just, to me, it's like this amorphous blob of time. Um, it's run this, this, this sword through us, and we now have this sense of BC, before COVID, and AC, after COVID. Um, but see, I think the reason we recognize that COVID is this big thing is because we know that in the history books to be written, COVID is going to be described as an era-defining moment. And the reason the world's in chaos and confusion, in large part, is because we are living in the overlap of two eras. So the way the world used to work is no longer operating that way. The way the world will work is not yet clear to us. So what we're doing is we're living at the very end of the death of one era, while we're living at the very beginning of a new era, an era that has not yet completely emerged, so we cannot quite know the rules of this era. We're living in what Mark Sayers calls the gray zone. Nothing is black and white. We don't know what the rules are. We don't know how to go forward. We don't know what success looks like. And so we live anxious, and politicians are angry, and the world is just really stabbing at the dark, trying to take control of things. And superpowers, <clears throat> Russia, um, seize the opportunity to move into a vacuum. And this gray zone is something that we all in this room can feel, not just in the COVID sense, but as a church, 
um, we have been living in a gray zone for a little bit of time, um, knowing that the Bible college is coming up and not knowing how exactly that changes things. And we found, okay, so we're going to move in this room and, and that's been a, that's been good. And we don't know for sure if, you know, if we're going to be here forever. And then people asking questions like, is this room going to be big enough in a, in a year or two? And like, yeah, it's a gray zone. We don't really know, but you guys are awesome because you ride this thing out with prayer and that's been great. Um, but on the other end of this, the Bible college too is living in a massive gray zone. The, the rules and the way of life of Marietta is now becoming Twin Peaks. And most people have been to Marietta. Most people have not been to Twin Peaks. So there's an unknown transition. And everybody in this room, whether you're part of our church, you're part of the Bible College, you're part of both, we have been living in a gray zone. And this is a gray zone on top of the COVID gray zone. Let me tell you, as your pastor, it was not fun to a few months into learning um, what it's like not to have Pastor Mike around to then have to navigate COVID with you. And that wasn't very fun. And then, and then um, a lot of uncertainty about um, uh, my future here and um, my living arrangements and um, uh is our church going to be allowed to be here? And um, is um, the Bible college a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I'm just saying the things a lot of you have asked or have been thinking. So, sorry, Bible college. We love that you're here, by the way. It's not at all. I, we just have to, like, speak frankly. And I, like we said, like, you guys have been going through your own thing, too. Um, and so I think this text is really big tonight because it really addresses where we all find ourselves and the way to go forward in a gray zone. So, um, Mark Sayers defined the gray zone as a confusing and contradictory zone filled with change and conflict where everything seems to be up in the air. And I can't say amen to that more. Although things start to seem to be settling and I feel better about things, um, but we've had several months um, just really unsure about a lot. It's like, it's like uh, pastoral transition, then COVID, and then and then this crazy summer. It's like it just never ends. It's been fun. Um, so I want to share with you. Like the reason I'm saying this is because I I come to Daniel six and I found myself reflecting on the last two three years, the last three years, um, in a deep way about okay. How, how have I navigated my way to this point? How have I felt about it? How can we as a family move into uncertain times? Because let's, what I'm trying to say is the world is not going to get clearer, not for the Christian. It's going to get more confusing because the world's going to be far more removed from our way of living. And we are going to have to rely not on Babylon, but upon the kingdom of God. Daniel tonight goes through this gray zone. So we get to follow a very godly man into this realm. So in Daniel chapter 6, this is what we read. You might remember from last week that um, Babylon ended. Um, Belshazzar had thrown that feast while the city was under siege. And God's finger wrote on the wall, um, you have been weighed and found wanting so the kingdom's numbered. Daniel says, tonight it's going to end. Cyrus marches in with his troops, takes the city, right? That's how chapter five ended. So chapter six, we're now going through a transition of government. It's no longer the Babylonian empire. It is now the Persian empire. Yet Daniel is still here in Babylon. Many people are still there in Babylon. How do we navigate the transition from Babylon to Persia? Well, in Daniel six, verse one, 
it says that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now, um, satraps you can think of as governors. He's, he's divided the kingdom into these 120 provinces, and the satraps are ruling those. And then verse 2, And over those governors, those satraps, three presidents. So one president gets 40 regions. Of whom Daniel was one of these presidents. To whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him, set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any fault, any, uh, sorry, we shall not find any ground of complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is Daniel's gray zone. Babylon is receding. Persia is rising. And what Daniel's faced with is a new king and a new organization of government. And in the midst of this new king with this new way of governing the kingdom, Daniel finds himself in a new role. He's now one of the three top guys under Darius. And in the midst of this, he finds he has new enemies. The other people he's ruling with don't like him. And now he's got to navigate, how do I not lose my head in this scenario? And on top of that, he's dealing with new rules that affect him directly. New rules. Look at verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came. The Hebrew is more dramatic than just they came. Um, It's more like they conspired. They came with the intent to take down. They came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into... The den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document that it cannot be changed according to the law um, of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Here's a new rule. You can't pray for 30 days. So why would Darius make this rule? Uh, When you read it on the surface, it's assumed, oh, Darius was egotistical, and he listened to his leaders praising him, and he just wanted to be worshipped. Everybody must pray to me. For 30 days, though? I mean, really, if if your goal is to be deified in the eyes of your kingdom, 30 days is not going to cut it. Pray to me forever. That's what he would have said. Second, we know historically that Persian kings did not deify themselves. 
In fact, the Persians began to develop a monotheistic belief system. That's a belief in one God. Um, the Persian kings did not see themselves as gods. So it's not, it doesn't seem likely that Darius wants the kingdom praying to him. The idea is probably more along the lines of, we're in this massive period of uncertainty. There are still pro-Babylonian rebels, likely. There are pro-Persians. There's this, this huge transition of cultures. There's a new governing style and system. And on top of all of this, the Persians instituted a new religious order. What Darius does, or excuse me, what Cyrus does, by the way, who's Darius and Cyrus? Um, the text is so confusing. Some people think Darius and Cyrus are the same people. Some people think that Cyrus was the king of the entire empire and he put Darius in charge of the Babylonian kingdom. Um, it's not sure. We're not sure for sure. <laughs> but at the end of chapter 6, you have an indication that the two of them are there. Um, some people think that Darius is the me- the media name, the Medes name of um, Cyrus, and Cyrus is the Persian name. But they might be two people. All that to say, though, so we're just going to kind of lump leadership into this cluster here. So Darius, Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus, we know in Ezra, um, he announces that all of the gods and artifacts of all the temples of all the nations that Babylon had taken as plunder and put into the temple of Marduk. Remember, we said that in the first opening message of, of Daniel. That's what Babylon did. They took all the gods and stuff, put it in Marduk's temple. Um Persia reversed that and said, we're opening up Marduk's temple and we are giving back all of the idols, all of the temple furnishings that was taken from all the kingdoms. It's all going back. Persia wanted the kingdoms of the world to have religious liberty. That was their idea of of gaining their loyalty to the Persian crown. So here we go. The entire religious establishment is being changed. The government's being changed. So for 30 days, Darius likely sees it as beneficial that no one goes to religious services. No one does anything in their own way. He right now is the one who's keeping everything together. That's the idea. He's not trying to be a god. He just wants to control the masses for 30 days until things settle down. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody remember going through this? It was three months more, so, but, um, yep, Darius wants to control for a little bit. So what does Daniel do in this context? What does he do? He prays. Chapter 10 says he prays. And I love how, um, sometimes I just love the candency of the message. It says he prays just as he always had done. He prayed just as he always had done. Daniel did not alter his prayer in any way. It's not like, oh, I can't pray for 30 days. What a great excuse to be spiritually lazy. I mean, am I right? If we're honest, how many of us would say, okay, I don't pray for 30 days. God still loves me because I am saved by grace. Or Daniel could just kind of pray without anyone knowing. Just while he's doing normal day stuff, just praying in his head all the time. I mean, hope he's doing that anyways and that we're doing that anyways. But Daniel doesn't do that. He continues to pray as he always did. He didn't alter what he had always done up to this point. And I think that's significant in Daniel's resolve, which we saw in chapter one. He was a very resolved young man. Now that he's in his 80s, his resolve 
remains. So here's what verse 10 says. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Or, again, as he just as he always had done. He didn't change anything about his prayer life. That's gutsy. Why didn't he change anything? Why didn't he just decide, okay, I will pray secretively, or I will just hold off for a little bit? Why did he feel the need to keep praying as he always did? I suggest two reasons. First, Daniel understood that prayer gives us courage. Prayer gives us courage even in the face of the lion's den. If we're in a time of uncertainty, that is not the time to withdraw from prayer a little bit. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to pray for, so I'm just going to pray less. Uh, That's not Daniel's thing. Daniel said, I'm going to keep praying as I always had. And this gives us courage. When the world changes and your prayer remains constant, you will feel that there is a continuation of peace between you and God. We must keep something consistent when everything else wants to change. Daniel understood that this is where I will find courage in an uncertain gray zone. So he continues to pray as he always had done. The Irish Christian poet John O'Donohue wrote this really cool. He said that real power has nothing to do with force, control, status, or money. Real power is the persistent courage to be at ease with the unresolved and the unfinished. True prayer in the Holy Spirit keeps the graciousness and splendor of that vulnerability open. So how do we stop reaching for the power schemes of the world when things go crazy? And how do we remain in this place of peace, constant peace, when nothing's resolved? Prayer gives us that constant peace. And that's what David, Daniel, if, if I've said, I might have said David. No? Okay. You said Daniel. Good. Okay. We've been saying Daniel. You, you all know what I mean anyways. Yeah. Daniel finds peace in his prayer. I found that this was really relatable. Um, as COVID came as this just really underestimated. I think America really underestimated what was going to happen. Like, oh, this will blow over in a bit. <laughs> as it came on, it, like, I think it just kind of the weight of it inc- like gradually set upon us. Like someone slowly letting go of a thousand pound weight on your chest, right? At first, like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then just like getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. Um, I went back through my journals from late 2019 and I read every single entry up to the present. Um, and it was really insightful. And I want to share very briefly a little bit how I relate to Daniel's resolve um, that prayer can, can give us courage in the face of the lion's den. Because the lion's den was what COVID was for so many people in their context. Um, here's what I wrote. Um, in April 4th, of, so, okay, at the end of 2019, um, you might remember this is like when a lot of people are getting sick. COVID wasn't really in the news yet. 
Um, at the end of 2019, I wrote a lot about this internal tension I was having. I was struggling with my students. I was struggling with people at church. I was, I was just struggling with myself. I didn't like myself. I didn't feel like anything was going really easily or well. Um, and then April 4th, 2020. So we're, what, two weeks into the lockdown? So April 4th, 2020, I wasn't sleeping well. Brittany wasn't sleeping well. And that's very unusual for us. Like, I sleep like a baby. I sleep well. I go out in five minutes, right? That's just me every night. Um, but I was not sleeping well. And I wrote, scattered and lacking some kind of center. I had no center. I was so unmoored from everything around me and just my thoughts. Then in June 15th, so we're like three months later, I think, um, I write something where I, I say, I felt as though I could be knocked over by a feather. How brittle we must be if a feather can knock us over. In June 6th, I wrote uh, that I began teaching the Psalms. So June 6th was the first Sunday that we met um, outside in the amphitheater. And we started with Psalm 1. Anybody remember this? Psalm 1 in the amphitheater? Um, And we went through the Psalms for months. One Psalm a Sunday. And that was so so necessary for me. Um, The Psalms, what they did is they got, I think, us as a church into the spirit of how the Bible prays. And in this time of madness, we needed to get to the heart of God and language and dialogue with God. Um, And then in August, I wrote about a conviction to lead the church into a new era. So apparently I was recognizing, like, we can't just go back and do things the way they were. Um, In September 5th, this is this is quotes now I'm reading an entry. I am convinced we need deep and true prayer, especially now when we are starved for some certainty. I just feel so inadequate. But who else will teach this if I don't? Either I teach them poorly or not at all. But if they can take one step into soul prayer, it will be worth it soul prayer. That was my term back then for deep, just prayer and connection with God, soul prayer. It will be worth it. So October 26th, this is still 2020, quote, we need more than entertainment style churches to survive the new post-COVID world we are entering. Hmm. So, um, I, uh, no secret that I've been sort of not on the train for entertainment center churches and we do nothing here to entertain you. So, um, (laughs) you're welcome. And November, November 9th, I wrote, and here's where you see the development. Remember I was once scattered and lacking some kind of center. Now, November 9th, I write, I find encouragement in prayer. Everything feels okay in God's presence. And then March 10th, well, so then, so sorry, the new year, uh, January 2021, you may remember, I described a vision of soil, water, light, that we're going to be a church that's grounded in, in rich, rich soil, um, water, we're going to keep preaching the scriptures as we always have, and light, um, we're going to try to build community, and um, we haven't quite gotten to the home aspect yet, but um, that's that's still what we're trying to shine forth. Um, you got to start with soil, right? And then you got to got to grow as you're watered, and then and hopefully we're going to get into that light phase soon. But so I introduced that concept, and I wrote about how the world has been dictating the church for decades now, and we're not going to be that church. We're going to set the tone from Scripture, and we're not going to let the culture dictate what we preach. We're not going to let the culture dictate um, how we think. We're not going to let the culture just dictate anything. And so there was a really good message. Um, I put a lot of work into that one, so you can go back and listen to that if you want to. But um, that was 2021. 
one. Then in March 10th, uh, I just wrote this, and I thought this encapsulated everything. Morning prayer has been my treasure. I thought, oh, that's it. Oh, that was it. Morning prayer has been my treasure. And so you see this progression where prayer is it really started as we started teaching the Psalms together as a family. Um, just being in the Psalms, it, it gave me a yearning to pray like the Psalms and a realization that I don't know how to pray. I want to learn to pray. I want to go deeper into prayer because I need courage. I feel so discouraged. People weren't giving me courage. <clears throat> They were complaining. Why are we not in Revelation? Why are we in the Psalms? We should be in Revelation. We should be doing sermons on fear. People are afraid. You're missing the point. You don't understand where people are at. I was like, I don't know. Last I checked, we need prayer. That's all I know. I'm just trying to teach how to pray. Stop. There was no courage anywhere, right? And the world wasn't going to be encouraging. But prayer is where I found it. And so I can relate to Daniel. I'm going to keep going with this because the lion's den is nothing if I can be present with God in the midst of that den. I will go to the den if it means I can be in soul prayer. Ah, that felt so good. Second reason Daniel does not withhold on his prayer is because he understands that prayer also gives us hope in the world to come. Prayer is not just about, okay, we got to survive what we're going through. Prayer also gives us the vision of our good God who has a kingdom that's coming. And he says, this is where we're going. It's not just about surviving this moment in Babylon, but it's about seeing what lies beyond Babylon, the kingdom of God. What's, what's God going to do in the midst of this uncertain, unknown gray zone? Because what we don't see is that God has a fertile soil out there waiting to grow the fruits of his kingdom. New eras are not a bummer for the Christian. A transition in kingdoms and empires for the Christian is an opportunity to be the backbone, to be the stability when all the rest of the world falls falls apart around it. And when the Roman Empire collapsed, that's what the church was. It was the last remaining sense of sanity when the Roman Empire fell to the barbarians. And that's why the church grew so much in the Middle Ages. And then, so, and of course, history keeps going through these transitions. And the church, brothers and sisters, we're supposed to be this backbone that doesn't shrink or shy away. But we say, look, what, what the Christians have been doing for 2,000 years has worked. We've survived not just Babylon, but every other reincarnation of Babylon since. And we will be just fine if we don't abandon the ways. Prayer gives us hope for the world to come. So I want to show you this in the rest of this chapter, how it gives us hope for the world to come. Because Daniel in this chapter is a picture of Christ in Gethsemane. Daniel in this chapter is a picture of Christ in Gethsemane. So Daniel prays just as he always had. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Just like Christ. In the place of prayer, he was arrested. Daniel, in the place of prayer, is arrested. Jesus was innocent. Daniel is innocent. Both are framed. So then they came, verse 12, near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did we not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of Lions! The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered, as they expected him to say, and they answered and said before the king, Well, Daniel 
who is one of the exiles from Judah, outsider, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. See, there you go. It's also proof that the king was not trying to be a god. He's not mad at Daniel that he's praying to his god. He just, he's like, oh man, I realize I was framed. This this really is a bummer. And in verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that the law is, that such is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Daniel's arrested in the place of prayer as an innocent man. Christ is arrested in the place of prayer as an innocent man. Daniel is thrown into the den. Christ is thrown onto the cross and descends to death. And then his body is thrown into the tomb. Now, Herod seals the tomb. They roll a stone over Christ's den and they seal it with the signet power of Herod. Signet rings, right? It's the king's emblem. They press it into the wax. Not that that's going to hold a rock back. That's not the idea. That if anybody opens the tomb, they know that they are breaking the command of Herod and is punishable, therefore, by death. Well, guess what happens here in verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So he's fasting, he's keeping vigil, and he's turning off Netflix. (laughs) And in verse 19... Now what we see is that God rescues Daniel from death. On Easter, God rescues Christ from death. Very important. The New Testament language is always that God raises Christ from the dead. He didn't raise himself. God raised him, which is important because we can't raise ourselves from dead, but from death, God will raise us in Christ from the dead. Um, Anyways, so God rescues both from their death realm of dead so then at daybreak at break of day verse 19 the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions as the women came in haste to the tomb and as he came near to the den where daniel was he cried out in a tone of anguish the king declared to daniel oh daniel servant of the living god has your god whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions mary wept outside the tomb was asking gardener where have you taken him Uh, Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no... Oh, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. No harm was found on him. Just like the three who were thrown into the fiery furnace, there was not even the smell of smoke on them. No harm whatsoever. God rescues both Christ and Daniel from the den. 
But Daniel, did he really have to keep praying during the 30-day stretch? I mean, wouldn't God have understood if he stopped? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like Daniel would have been condemned for that. Um, Did Daniel really have to open the windows to Jerusalem and pray three times a day? I mean, maybe whittle it down to midnight when no one's looking or keep the window shut? Like, did, did Daniel have to pray like this? Well, in Daniel's mind, and I would suggest in our minds too, it should be answered, yes. Yes, because of three reasons. First, first reason is that how we survive this gray zone determines how we will thrive in the new era. So if, if in the gray zone we shrink back, then that means when, uh, when the new era starts to emerge, we're going to be in a shrunken back position. The reason is because the gray zone tests and prepares us for what's to come. We don't know what's coming, so we have to trust God and prepare ourselves by continuing to do, and if not, growing in what he has already been giving us to do. We don't shrink back, but we get ourselves ready for what is to come. Um, we talk about a threshold as a divide from one room to another, right? A threshold is around a door uh, because you go from one place to another. And here Daniel's on the threshold of one empire to another. We are in a threshold of one era to another. We live in these thresholds. And I love the word threshold because it comes, of course, from the word thresh, which is a verb which comes from agriculture, in which a threshing means you're, you're separating the chaff from the grain of wheat. The chaff is unedible. The grain is what you eat. And threshing is to separate those. There's different ways to do that. But the idea is that you separate them. Thresholds, therefore, are periods, not just of moving from one place to another, but also of separating the useless parts of ourselves from the useful parts. And if we shrink back in the gray zone, then we will be threshed to nothing. What we need in these periods is to find out the parts of us that need to die and receive the grace from God to be strengthened for the period to come. This is why Daniel refuses to shrink back in the 30-day period of no prayer. Second reason, he continues, is that prayer gives a structure for the unstructure of the gray zone. And that's what I was describing to you guys in my journals, which I discovered is I found in prayer a structure in the midst of everything in the world just coming unglued and crumbling around me. Um, that's what Daniel seems to have found too. And the text wants us to know that. Very subtly, very, very coyly. But um, chapter 6 is structured in what, now the nerds among us will remember, I talk about this periodically, its structure was called a chiasm. A chiasm is where you have a period of uh, a sequence of events that reach a center and then reverses the sequence of events. So it's like if you're going on the keys of a keyboard, you're going on uh, the octaves and then you're moving inward to the middle key. Um, So here's how it looks. In verses 1 through 3, which we've read, we saw Daniel's initial success. He was elevated to one of the three presidents. In verses 4 through 9, as we read, we saw Darius's first decree. No one shall resume their religious activities. Um, in verse 10 through 15, the accusers conspire against Daniel's death. And then what we just finished reading is we reach the center of the chiasm. God rescues Daniel. He rescues him. Okay, now we're going to go through that same pattern backward. So now we're going to pick up where we left off. This is Daniel 6 verse 24. 
So now, where the accusers conspired for Daniel's death, now the accusers are going to be judged to their own death. See how that works? So verse 24, And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The lions are like, finally, someone who's not godly is in here and we can actually devour them. Um, because some, some scholars have pointed out that Daniel in the den is like a new Adam. As Adam had command of dominion over the creatures, so Daniel has command over the creatures. And there are stories, whether you believe them or not, um, there are stories of the old saints. Often there's a theme in their lives of having mastery over beasts. Some saints befriended lions. You'll remember when we looked at St. Francis last year, last October, um, Saint, there was that story about St. Francis befriending the wolf that was killing all the sheep and the children in the village. So whether those are true or not, the point is, is that a godly life gets us back to where we were meant to be, who we were meant to be in the image of God. Daniel here, because he's someone that does not withhold in prayer, but he continues to go, even when it's dangerous, the spirit of God is upon him and gives him this Adamic control, dominion over the lions. But the accusers, not a chance. They don't even touch the ground. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It deserves that. (laughs) And then in verse 25, um, we come back to Darius's first decree. It's now mirrored by Darius's second decree. The king Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end of the earth. Or dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The second decree. It's reversed from the first decree. And then finally, we saw at the beginning Daniel's initial success. Now we see his sustained success. His sustained success in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Start successful He continues on successful. It reminds me of Psalm 84, which says the pilgrims going to Zion move from strength to strength. The idea is that when you're on a pilgrimage, you usually go from strength to fatigue. But those that put the ways of the Lord in their hearts, the psalm says, move from strength to strength. Daniel, because of his prayer life, is moving from strength to strength. There's no loose losing or or demotion here in his story. His success is sustained. And now, this chiasm, I take us through it to show us that prayer gives us the same balance and progress that the chiastic structure presents the story in. It's mirrored, it's perfectly balanced, but it also moves somewhere. It starts here, things aren't good, it moves to the very heart where God delivers his people, and then from the place of that deliverance, it leads us out back into a new era of life. That is what prayer does, is it takes us from this uh, this stuckness, this I lack a center, I can't sleep, to this center where we meet with Christ in the Holy of Holies, this communing of our being with the Trinity. And then from there, he sends us forth to be empowered by him in the world. Daniel has to keep praying, because for Daniel, prayer is this kind of structure for his soul. 
So then the third reason Daniel does not withhold prayer at all, but prays exactly as he always had, is because he understands that if prayer does not order my life, then my life will order my prayer. If prayer does not order my life, then my life will order my prayer. Put it another way. If we keep prayer at the center and it doesn't change and we keep on going to it no matter what's happening, then prayer will give us the stronghold we need in the storm around. But if we pray in reaction to the storms or the things that happen to us, then our prayer will sound a lot like a windswept bird beating its beak against the window of your house. If your life is dictating when you pray and how you pray, you don't know the peace of soul that true communion with God gives to you. But if prayer is at the core and it's constant, then all this stuff around us is just, I just simply have to adapt to the grace that God's giving me for the moment. That's what Daniel understands. Either prayer is going to order his life or life is going to order his prayer. So I can either pray in reaction to things or I can pray in preparation for things. So all this leads me to encourage us in ways that I had um, back in January and February. We had that um, series on prayer called Becoming All Fire. Um, It's a good time to revisit one component of that. And that is, it's very clear that Daniel had a very intentional prayer life. We need, in this gray zone, a very intentional prayer life. Now, my language, and this language can change. There's there's no reason you have to use my wording. I like to refer to it as a prayer rule or a rule of prayer. Um, Because to me, um, this is, it's something that keeps me accountable. It's a rule that I can measure myself up against. It's this is how I want to pray, and this is how I'm doing. Am I keeping the prayer rule or am I not? Daniel clearly has something like this because he keeps praying the way he always had and it seems that it's very purposeful and intentional. Um, because if I am not ruled by my prayer, then what will I be ruled by? Well, I watched, and this is why I think a lot of us are losing our minds, as I watched everyone, I don't mean literally everyone, okay? I just mean the general mass. <laughs> I watched the masses, even in parts of the church, ruled by politics ruled by their feelings. A lot of it was anger, and a lot of it was grief, but ruled by their feelings. I watched a lot of us ruled by our desires and our circumstances, and and we're ruled by pleasing others. And I felt a lot of this too, which is where I began to realize I need prayer to rule my life so that these things don't rule my life. So what a, a, what a prayer rule can give us is accountability. We need rails to keep us on track. If you just kind of keep walking, did you know this is a fact? If you keep walking straight in one direction, you will ultimately end up going a completely different direction because we actually don't know how to walk straight. Your, your stronger leg will end up pulling you one way or the other. And so people who are lost in the woods without a compass to guide them to keep them going the right direction will actually end up walking in a big giant circle. We need rails. We can't just keep winging this prayer life. We need rails that guide us and say, you've kind of gotten lazy in your prayer life lately. I know this from experience, okay? I know that you can get into this, this, C.S. Lewis described it in his critique letters as um, a general mood of prayer. You can end up just going, sitting down with your coffee going, I just feel prayerful. Like, you don't start that way, but you gradually just get to less intense prayer and more, I just feel prayerful. That was nice. We need rails. I need a prayer rule that keeps me going in my intention. And some of us who bowl need those too. 
little bumper pads. <laughs> Prayer is too important to be determined by our moods and feelings. Without an established expectation, laziness will eventually cheapen and deaden our prayer. But the important thing is we establish this rule, but the rule does not rule us, it serves us. It's not a master, it's not a legalistic thing. I didn't keep it, I'm a failure. God's mad at me. No, it's there as an accountability. So I can measure if I'm getting lazy or getting off. I can adjust it if life has changed. But we need, the, we need something there to give us rails, a compass to keep us going forward. So I believe, and I found this in my going back over my journals, that um, intentional structured prayer, like a prayer rule, deepens our prayer. And I was actually talking to someone, um, I was hearing someone talk Thursday night, um, and saying that they found for them a prayer rule has caused them to pray more. And I found that to be so true. So here's what a prayer rule will do, is it will increase our frequency in prayer by overcoming inertia. Your frequency. Why do we not always pray? Because sometimes it just feels so hard to stop and to enter into prayer. And it's like, oh, this whole, like, I got a transition. And where do I start? It's called inertia. You all felt it when you wrote papers in college or when you're doing some project you have at work. You know it. The, 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 the text part you have to do at your fun job, the part you don't like, mm-hmm. all those things. You feel that inertia. But a prayer will guide you and says, start here. You don't have to think or figure all that out. You start here. Um, a prayer will increases our quantity by unburdening us from originality. Sometimes we get exhausted with feeling like I have to have something new to say all the time. But a prayer will say, you don't always have to have something new. Just, just at least pray the Psalms here. Because you said, I'm going to pray the Psalms every year, every month, whatever it is. Um, okay, at least I have that. Um, a prayer will also increases our quality of prayer. Because it surpasses the chatter in our minds. Without a rule of prayer, I'm left to pray what's going on up here. And okay, it's good to dump that, but that is not a great, realistic, thorough way to pray for the rest of your life. And then I'm just dialoguing with my ego. And more often than not, I'm not trying to separate myself from that. I'm trying to solve it in my own mind. And that's not actually trusting God with things. It's using prayer as a means of figuring out how to get my life back on track rather than giving it to God. Um, I wrote this in one of my journals. Um, The invisible spirit welcomes our soul and body into an invisible belonging in God. Without deep prayer, we will never come to terms with this belonging in God. If we only pray the chatter in our minds, we don't know the depth of belonging in prayer. Instead, we will decide to belong to, now I'm quoting someone, a system, person, or object, and short-circuit our belonging and squander our identity. The chatter in your mind won't get you to deep belonging with God. Instead, you're going to use that chatter to figure out what system, people, what party, what do I think about these things? That's not a good thing for prayer. Okay, so finally, how do we make a prayer rule? What does that even look like? Pastor Brandon, I don't even know what you're talking about. This sounds like rubbish. Um, This is how we make one. This is what it looks like. It looks like chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel clearly has a rule of prayer. In 6, verse 10, notice this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in the upper chamber open to Jerusalem. He has an intentional place. He got down on his knees. 
He has an intentional posture. Um, and three times a day, he has intentional appointments for prayer. And prayed and gave thanks before his God. He had an intentional um, subject matter, if you will. He had an intentional, um, I don't want to say thing, but he had an intentional thing to pray. Um, just as he had always done. Okay, so this is what we do then. Number one, set a time. Your prayer rule looks like this. First, what time do you pray? When I feel like it. No, that is not a prayer rule. That's not going to keep you accountable. Did I pray when I felt like it? Yep, every time. (laughs) Um, If it's 8 a.m., that's a good prayer rule. I'm going to pray at 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. Or, you know, whatever it is. That is a prayer. It's, it's, it's giving me accountability. Am I meeting this or am I not? Um, Daniel had three times a day. You don't have to do that. Okay, don't measure yourself to Daniel. Um, he's more loftier than we are. He had visions of the future. We don't. Um, however, if you want to be more like Daniel, you can pray three times a day. Our early Christians prayed three times a day. We know that in the early church writings, that they prayed the Lord's Prayer three times a day. So that means they had three set prayer times. Likely morning, um, afternoon, and evening. Um, so second, pick a place. Pick a place. You don't have to figure this out. Where am I going to do this? It's 8 a.m. and I don't know where I'm going to. Just have a place. Know where you're going to go. Daniel knew where. The window's facing Jerusalem. Now, um, this makes us a little uncomfortable because it feels Muslim, like facing Mecca to pray. Um, actually, the Muslims got that from Christians. <laughs> um, and Daniel got that, by the way, from First Kings chapter 8. Um, King Solomon said, And Lord, when we pray toward this holy house, hear our prayer. So Daniel's just following King Solomon's pattern, facing Jerusalem. And the funny thing here is, is that Jerusalem was in a heap of rubbles at this moment. So Daniel's actually exercising faith that God will restore Jerusalem. Um, the early Christians did the same thing. But rather than facing Jerusalem, because that's no longer our temple, um, Christ is our temple. So the Christians faced Christ. How do you face Christ? Well, some people imagine you put up a little picture of him and you face Christ. Um, or um, you face, like a lot of early Christians, did you face east? Because east was is the believed direction that Christ is coming back from, alluding to Matthew 25. He's coming from the east, so we face east in anticipation of his arrival. So that's a way of orienting yourself in prayer. Orient means to face east, actually, quite literally. To oxidate? I don't remember. We never say it. The other one's to face west. But we orient ourselves toward Christ. Um, you don't have to do that. There's no rule. It's just something that some people have done. So set a time, pick a place. Third, define your posture. Daniel knelt. You can kneel, you can stand, you can sit with your coffee in your rocking chair. There's no rule except that the Psalms are full of using your body. Daniel was using his body. Prayer should not be merely spiritual. It should also be physical to an extent. So get your body somewhere. Um, our, Our culture loves yoga. And Tyler and I were talking the other day of, um, well, we have nothing necessarily against yoga. It's just funny that we find this need because early Christians probably like, yoga, we do prostrations. What more do you need? Like, this is the perfect body workout. Um, anyways, just decide, like, what are you doing with your body? Be intentional with it. If you're sitting, great. Why? Be intentional. That's what a prayer rule looks like. What do you define your posture? Fourth, determine what you will pray. Determine what you will pray. Daniel gives thanks. It's very clear he determined to give thanks. Um, you might remember back when we taught on prayer in January and February, it was very clear that our prayers should include a, min- a minimum of three things to pray. 
we should give thanks, we should confess our sins, and we should intercede for others. Everything else, whatever. But we should at minimum do these three things. Pray for someone, um, acknowledge your sins before God, and thank Him. That doesn't have to be in that order, either of those orders. It just, I think those three things should be there. And Daniel has determined what he will pray. Um, And then fifth and finally, so we set a time, we pick a place, we define our posture, we determine what we will pray, and then we are finally realistic and consistent with our prayer rule. So that means, friends, that we don't say, I'm so on fire tonight, I'm going to pray one hour starting tomorrow morning. (laughs) Well, if you've never really prayed for more than 10 minutes, you're not going to do an hour. I'm sorry. Maybe you'll do it for one day, two, three days, but at some point you're going to feel like this is a burden. I can't do this. That's a terrible way to pray. Never feel burdened. But never also feel like this is just too easy. Somewhere in the middle is where our prayer rule is. It challenges us to press into God, but it never feels like work. Never let your prayer feel like a burden. So be realistic and consistent. That means I must pray as I can, not as I want. If you can't get up more than an hour before work, guess what? You probably shouldn't plan to pray for 40 minutes. That's not what you can do. That's what you want to do. Pray as you can, not as you want. It's better to pray what you can do every day to be consistent than to be inconsistent with what you're trying to do. And then finally, um, we should keep being realistic and consistent. You should keep whatever prayer rule you're determining for yourself, stick with it for at least a month. At least a month. Because what you will do is you'll try it for a week and you'll be like, okay, well, I don't like this. I'm going to tweak it or this didn't work for me. That's not enough time. God does not work in the timing we want him to. He's eternal. A week is nothing to him. A week's agonizing to us. We must stick with it for at least a month and let it work on us. Prayer is not my work. It's what it's, it's God's work in me. I must submit to prayer and let it work on me. So pray whatever you're determined to do. Try it for at least a month before you judge it, change it, throw it out. Then after a month, maybe you're like, okay, I love the Psalms more than I thought I did. I'm going to add a few more. Like, that's the adjustment that you do. But stick with it for a month, at least. And then, there you go. That's how you do it. I want to share one last entry that I found. This is in November 9, 2020. And this is after I had wrote a previous entry about, I just decided to establish a prayer rule, and I kind of described it in my journal. And this is what I wrote about it. So I had apparently been using it for some time. I don't remember when it started, but this was my reaction to it. It is so refreshing. It is so refreshing. I love having structure and being led into how to pray. One prays more this way. It eliminates the inertia of starting. And in addition, I find formed prayers to be forming my soul. And what I mean by that last part is I'd never tried praying a written prayer like the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer or some other prayer like the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, But then I I started adding a couple of those along with my spontaneous prayers. And I found that they were great because they were forming in me a different way to pray and a different desire for prayer than my own words were giving me. So I found this like mold of both. So brothers and sisters, prayer survives the gray zone and prepares us for the age to come. That's what we said tonight. 
It gives us the strength to get through these times and makes us the beings God wants his church to be for what is to come. So create a rule of prayer or create a devotional habit or whatever you want to call it, but create an intentional one and pray. That is how we survive the spirit of Babylon in our day and age.